0: uh, A couple things before we dive into our text this morning. Um, Many of you know we've been walking through the book of Ephesians over the last several months. Twenty-something sermons in the book of Ephesians. And we are to our last two sermons in the book. Uh, So we'll have today's and then one more to finish out chapter 6. Many of you have the the little black uh, ESV scripture journal things that we've passed out. And you've been taking notes in them over the last several months. Um, It is our practice here at Santa Cruz Baptist, whenever we finish a book of the Bible, um, to do a whole service that's reflecting on everything that we've learned out of a specific book. And so three weeks from now, that's exactly what we'll be doing. Um, We will be taking a whole service to reflect back on the book of Ephesians as a whole. um, To think deeply about what God has not only taught us, but how we've, we've changed things in our lives because of that. And so I want you guys to be thinking about that over the next couple of weeks. Look back uh, through those journals that we gave you. Think about things that have really impacted you and made a difference in your life. Um, And what kind of how we do it. Um, We take time to to sing together, to pray together, to do our normal liturgy. Um, But then we give time for you guys to come up. And in a minute or two, and I'm saying that really clearly, a minute or two, Um, you come up and just share, hey, this is something that really impacted me from the book of Ephesians. This is how it's playing out in my life. And so we want to hear that from you and be encouraged by that. Uh, That not only encourages me, it encourages the whole room. And so I want you guys to be thinking about that over the next couple weeks and and think through um, what you want to share. So with that said, um, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, and the title of this sermon is The Gospel Changes Everything. I'm sure that most, if not all, of you parents can relate to this. Uh, October 5th, 2008 seems like yesterday to me. Uh, I vividly remember waking up, uh, frantically, with Shannon Um, Going to the hospital and experiencing the absolute joy of Carson, our firstborn, being born. Uh, It was the most amazing moment ever. Uh, We were parents for the first time. But what were we supposed to do? Uh, She didn't come with an instruction manual. Now, she's a teenager. Time flies. As a parent... You listen to the song Cats in the Cradle a bit differently, don't you? You know the story. The son wants to to spend time with the dad when he's a little kid. The dad's constantly busy and always telling him that he'll hang out later. Then the son grows up. The dad wants to spend time with him, but the son is too busy. It's a sad, cautionary tale, isn't it? It's a story that unfortunately, can hit a little too close to home. Parents, we have a small amount of time to get this parenting thing right. It's more important than any career achievements or hobbies. But how do we do it? What instruction does God's Word give us? Last week, we entered the section of Ephesians known as the household codes. What does it look like to walk wisely in a household? This section breaks down into three parts. Wives and husbands, children and parents, bondservants, and masters. What Paul's telling us is the gospel affects every area of life. It changes how you live. Today, we'll be hitting sections two and three of the household codes. So... Let's dive into the text. Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Our four points for this sermon are these. Number one, God's wisdom to children in verses one through three; point two, God's wisdom to fathers in verse four. Three, God's wisdom to bond servants in verses five through eight. And then fourth, God's wisdom to masters in verse 9. So point one, God's wisdom to children. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. And before we dive into the specific commands, I want us to see something that's very clearly implied here. Who's Paul talking to in verses 1 through 3? Children. He's assuming that when the church was gathered for the reading of this letter that children would be present. He doesn't say, parents, make sure to tell your children to obey later when you get home. He's speaking directly to children here, who he assumes are in the gathering of the church. Sinclair Ferguson pointedly writes this. He says, when some churches complain that they're, quote, losing the young people from worship, the truth is that they have never actually been present at it. If we send a subliminal message to our children, you do not belong here, you would not enjoy it, we say something about ourselves. If worship were important to us, we would do everything to encourage our children to share that perspective. We also say something to the children. It should not surprise us if they hear what our actions say, as well as our words. Friends, this is why we intentionally hear Don't have a full menu of children's programs on a Sunday morning. As soon as your children are able to sit in here for 35 minutes, we want them in this service. I want you to hear that loud and clear. Even before that, we want them here for the singing and the prayers and the front half of our liturgy. Children watching their parents feast on the Word of God Sunday in and Sunday out is formative. You're modeling for them part of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. They get to see you sing with all of your heart to the King of Kings. They get to see you pray. They get to see you submit yourself under God's truth. They get to see you take and eat. You get to ask them basic questions about the sermon that you've both just heard on the way home. Then they get to see you living that out. As soon as you feel it's appropriate, we want your kids in here. Paul assumes that children will be in the gathering. So, what does he say to them? He starts with two commands in verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. First, notice that this command to obey is different than the previous command, to submit. It's not voluntary, like a wife to a husband. This word translated obey is the word hupakuo, which literally means to hear or to listen under. To hear or to listen under. In other words, it's saying to you kids... God is commanding you to place yourself or to to listen or to submit under, not over, your parents. Regardless of if you think you know better than what they're saying. And we have Jesus here as our example. Think about this. Jesus was fully God. The wisest human to ever walk the planet. Yet, he obeyed his parents. Look at this. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple with the teachers of the law. Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, he says, it says, after, the, uh, after three days they found him, meaning Jesus, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The smartest people in the room are amazed at Jesus. When he's a little boy, his parents come and find him, and Jesus reminds them of his relationship to God. Verse 49, And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What happens? Verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Children, have you ever felt misunderstood by your parents? Well, what's Jesus' response? Verses 51 and 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So even when Jesus was misunderstood by his parents, he was submissive to them. He obeyed them. He didn't despise their role in his life. Children, Jesus is your motto here. If you've ever thought, you know, I'm young and I really don't know how I can serve the Lord. Here's an opportunity. When you obey your parents, you're serving God. You may even be causing other families to see that your family relationships are different and beautiful in a way that points them to God your obedience serves God now what's the context of this command to you children children obey your parents in the Lord in other words God isn't calling you to obey things that would be outside the Lord or contrary to his will As with last week, God's commands are never for the purpose of sin. Your parents are under the authority of God. That's the sphere of their authority. So you might be thinking, Yes! I don't have to obey my parents except for a small little area. Wrong. Unless your parents are commanding you to sin, you're called to obey them. Even if you think it's dumb. Even if you don't understand them. Even if they don't understand you. Look at how Paul says this in Colossians 3.20. He says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Do you see that? When you obey your parents, it pleases the Lord. So even when it's hard for you, And sometimes it will be hard. You're to obey your parents in the Lord. And this is to train you for something much more important. Again, Ferguson is so helpful here. He says, children learn to obey their heavenly father by obeying their earthly fathers. God trains us to respond to his fatherhood, which we cannot see, by responding to earthly fatherhood which we can see he thinks of everything as he trains us to serve him in the future it's like a football player lifting weights why does he do this to build specific muscles for the game obeying your parents is training you to obey God children obey your parents in the Lord and what's Paul's first reason for this command Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's rooting his command in what's called natural law. He simply says, this is right. Regardless of what culture you're in, this is the expectation of a right-functioning society. In fact, when children aren't obeying their parents, this is actually a sign that the culture is heading for destruction. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 28 through 31 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless a society that disobeys parents is heading full speed into a brick wall that's what paul's saying obeying parents is the right way to live this is right this is instructive to parents as well when you're tempted to question whether or not you should require obedience from your children parents. This is right. Now on to the second command. Verse 2. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. While slightly different and more broad than obedience, the command to honor definitely has some overlap. If you're disobeying your parents, you're certainly not honoring them. In essence, You, like Adam and Eve in the garden, are saying, I know what you think is right for me, but I know better. I'm wiser than you, and I can do what I want. That's not honoring. Children, this is one of the the big 10 that we're about to see. It's the fifth commandment. And this command extends even when we leave our parents' home even into their and your old age. You're called to honor your father and mother. Let's look at this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. This is couched in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Similarly, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16 Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul takes both of these from Exodus and Deuteronomy, and he combines them. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, he says, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Children, do you see what God's word is saying? Obeying your parents has benefits benefits of blessing, that it may go well with you, and benefits of safety, that you may live long in the land. What, what Paul's not saying is that children who obey their parents will never die early. What he is saying is that in general, children who obey their parents tend to live longer, better lives because they're listening to their parents' wisdom in the Lord. As Kent Hughes notes, children who obey their parents are often warned of harm. They're spared of bad habits and bad friends, and they're built up in healthy character traits. In general, parents are a good guide for children. And a gift of God to them. This truth is all over Scripture. Proverbs three, verse one. "My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you." Proverbs 4:10, "Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many." Proverbs 10:27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. This is wisdom from God. Children, obey your parents. Why? Because it's right. And... Because you'll reap the benefits of God's blessing. Point two God's wisdom to fathers. Look with me at verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, Paul breaks this wisdom to fathers into two parts a negative command and a positive one. First, the negative. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There's so many ways that we can do this, fathers, intentionally or even accidentally. What kinds of things tend to provoke children to anger? Unreasonableness, either demanding too much of your children or saying no for no reason at all unreasonableness can provoke anger. Maybe you're overly critical and nothing's ever good enough for your children. This provokes anger. Maybe you're neglectful and just kind of checked out, uninterested in your child's life. This provokes anger. Maybe you don't follow through with your promises. These are just a handful of the thousands of ways that we can provoke our children to anger. Fathers, we have to be intentional. As with last week, I encourage you to have honest conversations with your children. Ask them if there's anywhere that you've provoked them to anger. Listen to them. If necessary, repent and ask for forgiveness. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative command. But Paul also gives us a positive one, too. He says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we've seen this first word that's translated bring them up before in this text. It's the word ek trefo, and it's the same word from chapter 529 that we, we saw last week. And it's translated nourish nourish. Calvin uh, actually translates the word, let them be kindly cherished. And I think that's the right sense of the word here. The idea is gentleness and care, to bring them up, let them be kindly cherished. So how are we to gently and kindly care for our children? First, Paul says, discipline, to bring them up. In the discipline. While we might quickly assume that he's talking about punishment of some kind, that's not the whole of the idea. It's a word that means training and even education. This may include punishment. Proverbs and many other texts are clear on our responsibilities as parents here. But this word is much, much broader than just punishment. He's talking about discipleship. Instead of provoking them to anger, we're to train them in the ways of Jesus. To further spell this out, he adds, we're to to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word translated instruction carries the connotation of admonition or of warning. Again, This is part of discipleship, isn't it? You, as parents, are called to warn your children when they're headed in the wrong direction. You're called to train them in the ways of the Lord. We saw this so clearly in the text that was read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Parents, hear this loud and clear. You are called to be the primary discipler of your children. While the church is here to equip you and to come alongside you and to supplement you, you are the one God has given as a steward of his child that he placed in your care. We can't outsource discipleship to the church or to the youth group, as important as those are. So I want to ask the question do you have a plan for this? Do you have a plan for discipling your children? John Tyson, in his book, The Intentional Father, he writes the following. He says, somebody is going to disciple your child. Somebody is going to give your child wisdom on how to live. And it's either going to be you and a community of godly men and women, or it's going to be the world. May it never be said that your child thinks there is more wisdom about life from Google and YouTube than from you. May their richest experiences be ones you curated and planned, not just random traumatic events that lead to brokenness. Amen. And ouch. Parents, we have to have a plan to disciple our children. As I shared with both the men's and women's discipleship cohorts the last two Sundays, This is one of the primary parts of my calling here as your pastor. I'm here to equip you in this. I'm here to resource you in this. I'm here to encourage you in this and to spur you on. I'm here, as we learned in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Your kids are one of the most important ministries in your life. I want to equip you well to do that. As a side note, this is why God's word makes the requirement for eldership this exactly. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 through says that an elder, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, you might be thinking, well, that's good and well, Drew, but... What about children that either don't have believing parents or don't have parents at all? Fantastic question. In both of these situations, the church gets to kick into high gear. This is one reason why we love Foster the Bay that I talked about earlier. It's churches intentionally coming alongside the foster system to minister to children in need. In fact, this is the story of Rob's barber here in Santa Cruz. He, he moved to the U.S. from Vietnam by himself as a child, and he ended up in the foster system. Well, he was placed in a Christian home where they took him in and, and they took him to church. They taught him the gospel and they discipled him. He followed Christ and is forever changed to this day. Here's my point. In situations where there's not a Christian parent in the mix, the church gets to be the church and disciple these precious children who are made in the image of God. In all other situations, parents are called to be the primary disciplers of their children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can't afford to be passive here. Let's continue on in the text, point three. God's wisdom to bond servants, verses five through eight. Now, before we move forward, I need to make some preliminary comments here. It's so easy here to just jump straight to the application that this applies to employers and employees. And ultimately, it does. But we have to first start with what it meant in Paul's day. Paul uses the word doulos, slaves. These were slaves that Paul was speaking to, not mere employees. With that said, our minds tend to go to brutal images of chattel slavery within American history. But that's not what was happening in Paul's time. Slavery was broad in scope and hear this loud and clear, it was not racial in nature. Further, slavery in Paul's day wasn't typically lifelong. The Roman Empire had approximately 60 million slaves, meaning that one third of the population, or maybe even more, were classified in this way. But One commentator notes that these slaves did not merely do menial work. They did nearly all the work, including oversight and management. In most professions some slaves were more educated than their owners they could own property even slaves and were allowed to save money to buy freedom no slave class existed for for slaves were present in all but the highest of economic and social strata many gained freedom by age 30. in other words the slavery paul's referencing here isn't chattel slavery Slaves could rise to the highest levels of society. In fact, Felix, the the governor of Judea in Acts chapter 23, was at one time a slave. So, that's the context that Paul's speaking into here. It would be false to make the claim that the Bible endorses chattel slavery. But why, why doesn't Paul come out and condemn slavery altogether? Here are some brief comments. First and foremost, that's not the point of this letter. Paul wasn't writing a document with the intent of changing social structures. That doesn't seem to be Jesus' focus either. So many people wanted Jesus to come in as a political figure and to overthrow Rome. But that's not what he did. He came as a suffering servant, not to overthrow Rome but to die. And by doing that, he redeemed us from a far worse version of slavery, bondage to sin and death and Satan. He redeemed us at the cost of his life. So Paul, like Jesus, knew that political changes are short-lived and not eternal. His primary goal in writing these letters that became most of the New Testament wasn't political. Now, this doesn't mean at all that we shouldn't seek to make political changes and to pursue a more just society. With the potential overturn of Roe versus Wade, we see the fruit of decades of hard work in the political realm. That's good and right. We also praise God that chattel slavery in the U.S. and elsewhere came to an end. I'm not telling anyone to be ambivalent about political matters. What I am saying is that social structures were never part of Paul's primary concern. Second, the structure of slavery was rapidly changing during Paul's time. Tony Merida points out that between 81 and 49 BC, 500,000 slaves were freed. Slaves were freed constantly and easily. That's what's going on in Paul's time. With all of that said, the Bible actually does clearly oppose slavery. Uh, Again, Merida comments that we are called to love our neighbor, not own our neighbor. Taking people against their will is vile, sinful, and the opposite of the great commandment. Second, the Bible never views slavery or masters positively. Think about this. Israel... In Egypt, God, as the Savior, came and rescued his people from their cruel taskmasters. Third, the Bible takes that imagery and uses it as a clear image of the gospel. We're freed from bondage. That's the language that the Bible uses. But look at Jesus's language. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Bottom line, the slavery of Paul's day was not what we think of when we think of slavery. Second, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery. Now, Let's see what Paul says. Verse five, verses 5 through 8. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. What I want us to see here is that Paul's primary concern is Christ. He's mentioned in every single verse here. Did you notice that? Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 8, as to the Lord. Verse 9, he will receive back from the Lord. Christians, when you give your life to Christ... Everything changes. Your focus changes. The gospel affects every area of your existence, even your work. Your focus at work is now on Christ from start to finish. That's what Paul's saying. So what does this look like? First, obeying. Obeying. Again, with the caveat of not sinning, We should be doing what our employers ask us to do. But it's even more than that. Paul says that we should obey with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Fear here means loving reverence. But this phrase, fear and trembling, it appears several times in Paul's letters. In Philippians 2, verse 12, This is how we're to work out our salvation, right? In fear and trembling. In 2 Corinthians 7, 15, this is how the Corinthian church received Titus. It says, And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Ferguson points out that in both of these cases, the phrase fear and trembling... Describes a loyalty whose nervousness lies in the thought that a loved one might be let down. Is this how you approach working for your boss? Or are you typically defiant, questioning everything? Or at best, just clocking in and clocking out? Paul says that a Christian at work is different. A Christian at work is different. Why? Because we're not just working for our boss. We're working for Christ. So I'll ask us this. If Christ were your boss, how would you work for him? Obediently, joyfully, with a heart that honors him. That's how we should work for our earthly bosses. And Paul spells this out even further in the next couple verses. Verse six. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. What's he saying? He's saying, yet again, in another way, you're not just working for your boss, you're working for Christ. You don't just work hard when your boss is present, and you don't just work to impress or please your boss. You work to do the will of God, who's always aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Do you see that? A Christian work ethic is a strong work ethic, but it involves a Godward heart focus and motivation. Verse seven, it's almost the same thing. He says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Do you think Paul's trying to clearly get across a point here? Yes, he is. Do you see? how this changes things, if maybe you have a bad boss, again, this isn't saying that you shouldn't try to make a change if you've got a bad boss, if that's available. But if you've got a bad boss, Christian, you're ultimately not working for him. You're working as to the Lord and not to a man. You can glorify God while working under a bad boss. You can also do it with a joyful heart. This is flat out different than the non-believing world around us, isn't it? Most employees tend to grumble, gossip, clock in and out with no real sense of purpose. But not the Christian. A Christian employee is different because they work for Christ. In fact, they represent Christ through how they work. Now, what's the motivation for such work? Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Understand this. Our salvation, being, being saved through Christ, our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, not of works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by Christ's finished work on the cross. Yet, this doesn't mean that Christ doesn't give rewards. Christian, you may work hard and with a good heart your whole career and never get noticed by your boss. Your master in heaven sees. He knows how you've worked. He knows your heart in that work. Nothing escapes his gaze. He'll reward you in heaven. That's what Paul's saying. Further, this doesn't just apply to slaves or bond servants, but to the free. Your social status doesn't mean special or different treatment from God. In other words, Paul recognizes that these slaves that he's talking to will probably eventually gain their freedom. So when that happens, they don't just take all that he said and chunk it out the window at that point. Their freedom doesn't change this posture. Your Christianity changes the way you work. So, we've seen God's wisdom to children, to parents, and to bond servants. Fourth and finally, we see God's wisdom to masters. Verse 9. Masters. Do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Do you see how shocking and countercultural this would have been? Everything he just told the bondservants, that they're working for Christ, that they're being watched by Christ, that they should work with the will of God as their heart motivation... He tells the masters to do the same to them. Talk about a shocking and outrageous command to most first century slave owners. Again, he's saying the gospel affects everything. It changes not only how you work, but how you manage those working for you. If you own a company, or if you're a boss, you're not autonomous. You manage under the eyes and authority of Christ. You, too, are working for Christ. And look at the two reasons Paul gives for this command. Number one, knowing that he who is both their master, speaking of the bondservants, and yours is in heaven. In other words, Christian masters are fellow slaves before Christ. They'll give an account for how they treated those under them. Second, he says, and there is no partiality with him. There is no partiality with God. Your economic status doesn't give you special privileges with God on the day of judgment. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and you will be judged with the same yardstick on the final day. They won't have a special advantage with God. Both of these truths should sober Christian masters or bosses. It should give them a sense of humility before God. That's Paul's point. A Christian boss is different. The gospel has changed them and shaped the way that they treat those under them. Because they know that they too are under authority. Here's what we're meant